Some people say, oh, you have to do this and you must go this route and this is the blueprint. No, try some shit, do some different things, but you gotta, I think you have to give yourself time. I only had that year to transition and you have to start early. In our latest episode, we share an incredible evening with Tanya Oxendine, a former command sergeant major in the U.S. Army who served for over 30 years. Tanya is someone others should look to feel inspired by as not only a woman of color, but as someone who broke down every barrier in her way to achieve the highest enlisted rank in the military and much more. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Tanya, how's it going? How are you? Good. How you doing? Good. I'm happy to have you on. I know Dan and I were talking about uh, how great it would be to have you join us on our show on this podcast, especially just after we just, or I just met up with you uh, on my road trip and took your photo for this book. So welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thanks. What's up, Dan? How's it going? You know, we were we were talking about how funny it was when uh, you were in touch with Dan while I was on the road and then I got in touch with you and there was that whole confusion of like, wait, I talked to a guy named Dan who's working on a photo book called The 20 Year War. <laughs> Are you working on another one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was about it and all of that and you know with jc and i was like what like is it like another person work on the same damn book no yeah, yeah. it was funny because i was i was simultaneously texting Bo, and i was like hey i think i found somebody in the atlanta area that would be great for this book and he was like really i have somebody in the atlanta area for this book and i was <laughs> like who is it and he's like her name is tanya and i was like i'm suggesting a tanya too <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it was great though i mean um to kind of catch you up you know before we get into your story you know we're pretty much uh wrapping up all the veterans dan and i just took a trip uh northeast so we drove all the way up to maine and then just got back last night and then besides a few flights here and there to texas utah um, we're pretty much done and it was great kind of meeting up with you and hearing your story too yeah, yeah, I mean, y'all, you guys have been um, like really, really busy and, and brave as well, like going out and doing it during the pandemic. Like, I know the army says the army goes rolling the rock, you know, rolling along, you know, good lord, <laughs> y'all don't even stop even doing the pandemic. But I mean, that's good shit. Oops, I mean, I hope I don't. No, no, you're, you're fine. Good. You're good. We'll have a lot of that. This is uh, this is an explicit uh, rated episode. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah that's good. No, it was it was interesting the whole road trip, you know, cuz Bo was saying when he was on his month-long road trip, he didn't really have any, you know, issues or hurdles, but we started mm -hmm. going to the northeast and um it was interesting how how much more restrictions they had in certain areas like they were doing right. a really good job uh, mm -hmm. doing the contact tracing and everything. Like every restaurant mm -hmm. you went to, you had to, you know, give your name and phone number in case something, you know, somebody tested positive wow. or, or yeah. something they would call you. Yeah. So. It was kind of uh it was it was very different. Wow. Yeah, I didn't experience so, that at all on my road trip, you know, all the way from North Carolina driving out to California and back. Mm -hmm. You know, mo the states were still pretty closed down, but there was never the issue of having to put your phone number down at like, you know, hotels or restaurants. And right. uh the northeast, I think like Maine, uh what else was it? Was it Vermont, a few yeah. other ones you yeah. kind of had to do that. Mhm. Mm what about um I mean, I'm now 
you guys do you have to go to Texas or you already been to that area or I gotta go back. Um you have to go back. Yeah, so I'll actually be flying out to Texas uh probably in about a week. Yeah. Um, okay. Just for a few days and then I come back and then uh we'll fly out to Utah at the end of the month mm -hmm. and that'll okay. that'll pretty much be it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, you guys are doing a great job. So Well thank can't you. Wait thank you. The book comes out and you know, get to get to read about all the other veterans' stories and mm -hmm. stuff. So you know, uh quickly I will say we uh we met up with J C in uh, mm -hmm. New York and stayed in his town and had a great time oh, okay. kind of connecting with him. And, um, you know, we recently found out that, uh, he's kind of moving on to other things. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, it was great just, you know, getting in touch with him and hearing his story and how much, you know, he talked highly of you too. Yeah. Yeah. JC is like an amazing, you know, man, you know, mm -hmm. veteran, mm -hmm. soldier, all that ranger, you know, he's just a, just all around good guy. You know, you can ask for a better colleague, friend, you know, mentor, whatever the hell adjective you want to give somebody. Right. But mm -hmm. he's just such a good guy. Yeah, he did. He, he moved on to, you know, some other things that, um, you know, some things that he needed to do personally for himself. And um, I guess, you know, it's maybe a second career or just doing something else in the service co uh, community where he's serving something for himself, his yeah. own thing. Yeah. Which is still the same, you know, we're, we're still all serving so oh yeah that, 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 that's yep. good. yeah and that, it doesn't stop at uh retirement or separation yeah you know i know you guys got some questions about that and that's just some of the kind of difficulty that you know just going through that piece and just trying to figure the shit out because like you mm -hmm. know i'm fucking 55 i just turned 55 <laughs> monday before last and stuff and i'm like what am i supposed to do when i grow up you know so. <laughs> you look fucking great for 55 <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, man. I still do good PT, so. <laughs> there you go. That's all you got to do. I want to get started. I think it's important to obviously start all the way back from when I was visiting you. You know, you mentioned that you grew up in St. Augustine, Florida, and it was right. literally right after I just passed through that area and kind of got to see a little bit of the area and all that. But I wanted to kind of touch on more on, you know, your upbringing and did it have any influence with you joining the Army? Uh, all the influence of me joining the army. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, I don't, don't want to try to use fancy words, so I'm just going to say, just, you know, what's regular for me. I, me and my brother and my mother, my mother was a single parent, um, so we grew up pretty poor, you know, and mm -hmm. we lived on a town, uh, a side of town that was called Out West. It was West Augustine, mm -hmm. so we called it Out West, like past the railroad tracks and this kind of stuff, so nothing good happens at night in past the railroad tracks. <laughs> the West Side. <laughs> or, or during the day, mostly, but <laughs> Yeah, you know, so my mom, you know, she tried her best and did the best she could with what she had yeah. at that time. You know, neither one of our dads were around. Um, I don't know who my dad is. I don't think my brother knows who his dad is. You know, just growing up like that, people say, oh, this is your dad. That's your dad. But, you know, you never know. I really don't give a damn now. I don't you take a DNA test. I don't care. Yeah. You know, I'm a grown woman. So, but yeah, you know, my mom had it tough. You know, she um never had a steady job. It was just from job to job or, you know, not working for a long periods of time. And, um, you know, we were on government assistance, food stamps, welfare, um, just had enough to wear to school when it was time to go to school. Mm -hmm. um, most times our lights would be cut off. And I remember, I don't know if you guys remember, it was this big, thick industrial extension cord. It was orange and it had like this little light bulb thing on the end, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yep. Yeah, yeah, one of those old, right. So um, we used to run the extension cord from our house to our cousin's house just to have enough light for oh, in the shit. evenings, you know, um, so that we could see, you know, and Jeez. sometimes the water we cut off and just have to get enough water just to wash dishes and different, it's just not good conditions. But, mm-hmm. you know, we made it. Um, well, I made it. My brother didn't necessarily because he's incarcerated. Um, he chose a different path um, because of our circumstances and because of his choices. Um, yeah, so it was just tough, you know, and then growing up in an environment, uh, when I grew up, I was born in 66, so when I grew up coming up in the, you know, early 70s and early 80s, um, mm-hmm. things were just, um, I think people were still in that old mindset, like, you know, you're a little girl and you sit your ass down somewhere, or if you're talking to an adult, or especially a male, you know, you would be called out your name or you're fast or you're a hot tail or something like that, right? We didn't know any better. I wasn't trying to be that. But older men, yeah, they were men, whether it was my cousins, my uncles, or my mom's boyfriends or whatever, they took advantage of me as a young girl. And, you know, not not only no one should have to go through that, but wow. definitely not a, a young child. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah. So, to, to do those type of things. So it just wasn't good. And, you know, mm-hmm. I look back and I, I do believe that my mom was probably abused as well. A lot of that shit was kind of swept under the rug back then. They turned a blind eye. And I do think our family, um, some of our family knew about it, just didn't talk about it. Like we mm-hmm. talk about it more now, you know? Well, I imagine that was hard for you because I'm, I'm assuming as a young girl, you want to tell your mom, but do you think that uh, like she would believe you or would it be hard for her to almost accept that? And so she would turn a blind eye. I think that she would have believed me, but because of the stigma and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, um, I don't think she would have helped or said anything. Cause again, I think the same thing was happening to her. Okay. Um, I don't want to tell my brother's story, but I will speak from what I know that um, a cousin supposedly is his dad. I mean, how, what the fuck, right? Really? Like, wait, really? So like right now I get chills, I get angry, I get fucking mad. I want to cry and all kind of fucking emotions. Like, I hope I don't even fucking start crying because I fucking get so mad. Like you call after all these years, he's incarcerated, he's a grown man. And you call and tell his daughter, which is my niece, oh, I'm your granddad. What? Yeah. Mm. You know, by the way, that's the same man who molested me as a child. So how about I take a trip up there now because I'm not a little girl anymore. I'm a grown ass woman and go confront you. So that's what I did. Yeah. So that's that obviously I can imagine it just almost put that over your head where you're just like, I want to get the fuck out of here. If the army's opportunity for me to get out of here, then I'm going to hop on the train and get on board with that. Right. And it wasn't a plan. You know, I'm just walking down the street with some friends. Um, like we usually do on the weekends or whatever day, you know, just walking down the street mm-hmm. um, and just ran into the recruiting station. Had no idea. Nobody in my family is in the military. Well, let me take that back. My uncles were in Vietnam, but we didn't talk about it because I didn't know my uncles that well. They were in different states and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just walking down the street in the first office happened to be an army office. And I walked in, if it was a Marine office, you would be talking to a Marine or an airman, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but the first office was was an army recruiting office. And and I knew deep down in my heart and mind that I was not staying in St. Augustine anyway. Yeah. I don't know how I was going to leave or what was going to happen. We couldn't afford to go to college. I was pretty smart in school, but nobody said, oh, you can get a scholarship or academic and this. So college was out because, hell, we couldn't afford it, not mm. thinking how we were thinking. So when they said, hey, yeah, you passed the test and you can go, I was like, yes, I'm out of here. So yeah. 
How, that's, how, that's awesome. How old were you when you when you joined then? I was 19. Wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then so where did uh if you can recall back to when 9-11 happened, um, what was that personal experience like for you? And where were you at at that time? I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina in the 82nd Airborne Division. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of us were down at the battalion for a um, enlisted board preparation. And um, I was in there cussing and fussing as usual because <laughs> they were taking so long to come into the board. And I was like, listen, we got things to do. You know, we got motor pool to check. We got shit to check. We got stuff to do. Y'all need to come on in here. And it was like, hey, the World Trade Center, you know, just got, I was, I come out in the, in the S3 in our operations section and I look at the TV and I'm like, eh, that's not in America, that's some other country. Because I could not believe it. Like everyone mm-hmm. was standing there, of course, in shock, in tears, just, just unbelievable. It's no other word for me than those words, like unbelievable, just, you know, just pure shock and awe. Um, but then, you know, we quickly got our wits about us and said, hey, you know, we need to get into alert mode. Um, you know, being in the 82nd Airborne Division, you have 18 hours to be prepared to deploy mm-hmm. if you are that unit that has been training to deploy at that time. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point, you know, the training kind of kicks in and the mentality kicks in like, oh, shit, this is they bombed us. We're going to war. So, yeah. yeah. To take a step back, were you always... Um, when you first, uh, you know, signed up and enlisted, went to the recruiter, got all the information, were you always interested in the airborne unit then? Or what kind of led you down that route? No, I was not. Um, <laughs> once I came in as a, um, begin, again, didn't know anything about the army, anything mm-hmm. about the military. So when I came in, my job that they gave me was an uh, HR, human resources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as I continue to find like, oh, you can do this and you can do that. You can do this and do that. The army gives you, military gives you so many opportunities, right? Yeah. So you are allowed if you meet the correct people. Help me out now. Prerequisites. Prerequisites. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget I got that sent out of the high school education. (laughs) If you meet the prerequisites, of course you can do these jobs, right? So I would meet the prerequisites. Um, I was a drill instructor um, and and I was in a a senior course, I believe it was, or a basic course, I think, either before or after drill sergeant, um, after I was a drill sergeant, drill instructor. And one of my buddies that was in the course with me had on this badass burgundy beret and these jump boots and he was so sharp i was like i don't know what but i want to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right so it was airborne and that's kind of how i ended up at uh you know going to airborne school and, and definitely wanted to go to the 82nd on the center of the universe you know i know there are other airborne units and which they're all great but yeah um, yeah that's awesome how many uh how many women were in that uh unit then I cannot give you the percentage, but okay. the 82nd Air one is a male-dominated unit because it's infantry, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So it's a male-dominated uh, unit. Um, special operations, Fort Bragg is a special operations installation. So it's male-dominated. I don't know the percentage. Um, I don't know, maybe less than 1% female were airborne out of whatever. I, I can't be sure of that percentage. That's a good question. So next time I talk about yeah, this, yeah. I'll know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, also, uh, because the timing of everything, too, like, so when did you go? Did you go to airborne school? Did you get uh, airborne qualified and everything? Uh Uh-huh. Went to Fort Benning. I went to airborne school in 90. I came off the trail in 99. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the drill instructor. I came off a drill instructor in 99. I went to airborne school uh, in 96, 97, 98, 99. Yeah, 99. Mm -hmm. And then I went to airborne school in 99 at Fort Benning. 
um, down in Columbus, Georgia. And then, and, um, once I graduated, I went to the 82nd. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, even when I went through airborne school and this was in 2006, so, uh, I guess only about seven years later, but, uh, you know, not, not very many females go through airborne school. So, um, even seven years earlier, I'm sure it was kind of, you know, slim how many females are going through and you pr- mm-hmm. probably get a sideways stare and stuff. And people are like, you know, why, why is a female going through this? And right. Yeah. Right. And then of course, you know, Fort Benning, that's all infantry, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's all infantry been down in Fort Benning, but you know, you're in your, your, I was a some first class at that. And I went as a senior NCO, right. Mm. And I volunteered. So I was not chosen because most times, not most times, sometimes when, uh, soldiers, I can only speak for soldiers that, that, that I'm familiar with. They get chosen for these different um, specialty jobs. Um, they may decline or say, no, I don't want to do this. And they do something else. I mean, it's just kind of always been in me like a go-getter and kind of hard charging and shit and, you know, trying to do something different and stand out. And then, oh, by the way, I get to set an example for um, not only brown people that look brown girls that look like me, but just women in general. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. So what were your responsibilities like then when you were deployed uh, overseas? Um, yeah. So when I was deployed, I was deployed, deployed uh, in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So I was both deployed both times as a senior enlisted person. I was a first sergeant and then I was a command sergeant major. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just at the end of the day, you know, being a leader, you're responsible for soldiers, you're responsible for their welfare, you're responsible for, you know, the good the health, good order and discipline, um, accountability, um, and, and all those things, just like any leader in any organization. So that's basically what I was responsible for. Now, when I deployed the second time, that level of responsibility, although it was um, a high level of responsibility, and I had more soldiers that I was responsible for, mm-hmm. I also had more people that could answer, you know, because it's levels, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm up mm-hmm. here as a command sergeant major, and I have my first sergeants, and they have so on and so forth. So I didn't have to necessarily deal with so many uh, subordinates, just a few of my subordinates and all the leaders would get together. But, um, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan, because we're at war, right? But just being in those leadership positions, and I know, you know, we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, just taught me so much for what, you know, how I succeeded in the military. And then even now, after some struggles and just people ask me, have asked me before, did you change anything about your life? No, not even the stuff that happened to me as a child, right? Because even though it's fucking terrible and I could probably kill somebody, um, I think it makes room for me to help other people. Mm-hmm. Totally. Right. Absolutely. I, I believe in uh, as horrible as it is that those experiences that happen to people that are less fortunate to have those experiences happen to them. I almost think that maybe those people are stronger than the everyday person because if they can go through that kind of experience, they can help teach other people what it's like to go through those experiences they can grow from it, you know, and encourage others or just to help others out too. So yeah. I think yeah. it's, it's obviously made you who you are. So I agree. Right. You should never regret what's happened to you. And it may sound cliche, you know, but I think it just, for me, it just stands true. Like I heal when I get to say this, cause hopefully someone else would heal. Cause mm-hmm. it was a time that I wouldn't, I was ashamed of, you know, where I grew up. Um, I definitely didn't want to be judged about being, you know, molested as a child and mm-hmm. did, you know, raped and molested while I was a young soldier in the military. It was just like so shameful and people look down on you and judge you. But so you just said that you were molested while you were in the army then? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yep, as a, a, a private and basic training uh, and in AIT. In our, you know, we go to basic training, then we go to school for our for our job that we're the job that we're going to do, and in what we call advanced individual training for mm -hmm. our schooling. Yeah, uh, you know. I I know, I know how you you probably feel, or I, I don't know how you feel. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't know how you feel at all. But I can tell, you know, as somebody who has three sisters, like I can't tell you how much, like anything that happens to a woman just completely infuriates me, to a point where, like, if I if I found out that one of my friends or one of my Joes or anybody like I was serving with or something pulled some shit like that, like. I don't even know what I would do, but I would get to the point of boiling over, you know, to where I would be like, prosecute this person, put them in the ground, whatever you have to do, like this shit should not happen. And I know when you were coming up in the military, like it was definitely a, a it still is a problem, but it was a, a, a worser problem back then. Um, you know, females in the military was still not as common um, the percentage has definitely gone up. I think it's like, you know, 40% females in the military now today, um, which is awesome. And a lot has changed as far as sexual harassment training and sexual abuse training and things like that. But, you know, for anybody who's who's listening to this to understand kind of what that was like, like, I, I hope they take your story and just you know, understand that that is not an OK thing. It's not normal. It should never be normalized. And it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Mm -hmm. If you hear or see something like that happen, you've got to speak up and you've got to tell somebody. No, you're exactly right. Uh, because I just think like when I was growing up and like I said, when I was a child and coming up in the 70s and then when I joined the military in the 80s and even 90s and stuff, I just think that let's just say male female right because we know it happens to to both yep. genders yep. both sexes if that's the right i want to make sure i'm saying the right thing here but all i can speak about is my experience and what i've seen and it was just swept under the rug it was so common it was like the, the comments that were made and even as women because we thought it was like okay like for a man to say this or to do this because who are we going to tell our moms who was already you know, being treated this way, who are our friends who was already being treated this way. We didn't think to, I mean, I didn't think to come together and get a group and say, oh, well, let's talk about, because just people just, and even to this day, you know, people just judge and they just treat you so wrong and so bad. And I had this thriving fucking career and I was not going to do anything to jeopardize it. So I kept it to myself. I didn't say anything to anybody because I wanted to keep my job mm -hmm. because I saw other females that would say something and they would get transferred mm. or they would get chaptered and the male yes. soldier would get promoted. And you're like, fuck, I'm not saying anything because I like what I'm doing. Outside of the shit that happened, I love my job. I love serving my country and my soldiers. Like, I, I, I would go back today if they called and needed me, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. despite all the shit that even happened. And I don't know why. I don't know why some men just think it's okay to treat women like shit and to talk and just say and do anything that you want to do to women. You cannot, you know, and you should not. Mm -hmm. and, and what I would say to women now, because now we have, you know, Me Too and all these other organizations that support women and bring them in and that understand what they are going through and have gone through. 
Um, and I think maybe if I would have spoken up then, who, who the hell knows, right? That's why I say I wouldn't change anything because I am brave enough to speak up now. I am brave enough to have a voice. And that's just what I would say to anybody that's being mistreated to mm-hmm. fucking speak up. Yeah. Do not be silent. Do not let anyone silence you. You know yeah. what I think it is, is I think it, <clears throat> from the male perspective, I think it just really comes from a very deep insecurity with oneself. So I think it almost comes from childhood experiences to whatever else it is they've never dealt with as men. And then they take it out on what they view as like a weaker person. You know, they think that, oh, I can take it on this person because maybe I was, things were taken out on me. And it's a shame to see that that's where the mindset of a lot of people is, especially, you know, in something like that with the army where it still occurs, Um, you know, maybe not so much nowadays um, or not as much or as frequently, but you know, it's just terrible to hear about those experiences. Um, nonetheless. Right. Because you know, if you, I'm sorry, guys. You're good. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you, if you can, again, if you continue to see this type of, uh, um, uh, behavior mm-hmm. that's being accepted by not only, you know, and I'm talking about men and women, not only just the men, but our senior leadership who, are, oh, by the way, are what? Are men. Because again, there's nobody that looks like me and not, you know, whether I'm brown or whether I'm a woman in these positions. So there's nobody to fight for us. And that's why I always tell women or even young women is coming out now that may uh, say something like, oh, I don't want to be in the room with men or um, they're, they're just this or they're that. No, we have to be there because we have to have a seat at the table. If we don't have a seat at the table, we can't share our voice. They don't know what's going on. We have to have that input. That's why that diversity and inclusion is so important. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing that frustrates me is, you know, when you're in the military, too, it's it. what's crazy to me is it's it's preached all the time, right? It's a brotherhood. It's a sisterhood. It's like you are a family. You are literally here to protect the person to your left and to your right. It should not matter if that person is a different. And for the most part, 99% of the time, this is true. Probably 99.9% of the time, this is true. But that 0.1%, you know, it doesn't matter what race, creed, color, background, orientation, male, female, it should not matter. You you both are there to serve a purpose and to serve, you know, your your fellow male and female brother and sister to your left and to your right, and you're there to protect each other. And so anytime you get to a point where, you know, somebody is in a vulnerable place and you can see that, you have to act up and w- a- act to prevent that. And anytime you see um, or something has happened to you, I know it's the probably one of the worst feelings and things that you can go through, but at least try and speak up to somebody, mm-hmm. say something right. to somebody. Right. Yeah. I mean, cause you, you know, you, you are, you're isolated. You feel that's, you know, all alone, you feel like you're the only one. You feel like, you know, again, somebody's going to judge. You just feel so bad. And, and although I felt so bad about that, I, I think a part of that too, like really pushed me to, be so much better in so many other areas like my you know my job in the military or to excel in school when i was 
you know, a child or to be great at sports when I was a child. So I, while this bad thing was happening, I was able to push that to the back, but then excel over here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that makes sense. Um, you know, but, you know, you, you talked about, you know, family, you know, treating people like family. Well, hell, look what my family did yeah. to me. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So I get it. We say that, oh, treat them like their family. Like, fuck, you know, sometimes I'm like, no, like, you know what I'm saying? So I, I really don't know the answer. I just think people that do that, um, they, they I, I don't know. They, they would have to tell me, like, why do you do this? Like, what's going on with you? I think a lot of it, too, with with, with men, we, we continue not we, I'm talking about maybe society, right? Mm-hmm. Not saying we here. We continue to talk like, oh, how many women do you get? Or it's okay for a man to have so many women. And it, it's just this mentality about yeah. where women stand and like a man is higher than a woman. And it's just, I, I don't know if I'm saying it the right way. And I don't want to say the wrong thing here to offend anybody. Um, yeah, it's just no, it's an interesting uh divide to where you know men it's almost like a prideful thing to have a higher number account uh right. you know with and then on the female contrary if you have the same you're considered a slut and it's just right. like but that's why i didn't want to like go there because i'm like like what can i say here you know what i'm yep, saying right yeah. so you like get all these pat on the back if you know you got three and four women men you know got three and four women that they are you know, seeing and hanging out with, but a young woman or a, a woman can have three or four male partners. If it's partners or fucking friends, now you a hoe, you a bitch, you a, you know, you you a diss and call out your name, you a slut and mm. all this other kind of stuff. And it's and I think we just got to change the, I guess the word these days is narrative. We got to change the way we talk. We got to change the way we, you know, raise our children. Um, and you know, I know I'm talking about you know men on women, but we know that the statistics I think are very low, and maybe a lot lower than um, I'm sorry, guys, a lot lower than you know maybe male on female. But we know it happened that females do it to men, and men do it same sex, and all this other type of stuff. I can just only say you know what happened to me, and then my experiences with other um, women. And I would try my hardest to protect the females in my unit Mm -hmm. by um, not necessarily saying anything to someone in which I think I, I don't want to say fail, but I think I failed maybe on that, but protect them in a way where we would sit down in groups and talk and say, Hey, listen, you guys can come talk to me. Mm -hmm. I'll be your sounding board. Let me fight for you. So on and so forth. Cause I've seen it so many times, like I said in the beginning where women would get transferred to another unit and the male would stay or, or chaptered. And the and the male, you know, would either be keep his same rank and could retire, which was what a senior, either a senior enlisted mm-hmm. soldier or a senior officer. Yeah, That's- it's it comes down to having that uncomfortable conversation, like, and it should be it should be more commonplace to have those conversations. And you know, again, the army is doing a, a trying to do a good job, and I understand this is probably happening across all branches. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know for me, every time that I had to do every year, you know, the sexual harassment training or whatever I needed to do. It was always these online modules, you know, it was like some online module. And, and of course, you know, me, I was young and stupid and I just sat there, click, 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 right. click, just right. try and get through it. Right. And I wish it was more of, you know, cause they do, they do try and share stories and stuff like that. And it, you know, they're trying, you know, have a more of a connection like that, but, um, maybe more hands on not not hands-on but like uh 
more face to face you know what i mean more personal interaction like people are going to pay attention when somebody's sitting in front of you and it's an actual person you know yeah. and you have that interaction and that training so yeah i just wish you know again i don't know how things are now i've been out for eight years almost nine years right. so things could be very different um right. but uh yeah i just wish it was more of that having those uncomfortable con conversations and it, and it being commonplace um right. to talk right. about it yeah, yeah. That's, that's better and I, to say. And you're right. And I think they did start something like that. It was doing with Sharp, the sexual harassment um, piece. But um, I'm not, again, I've been out now. Ooh, seven years. <laughs> uh, coming up on seven years. So I'm sure they've made some change. The military um, has made a lot of changes mm -hmm. when it comes to sexual harassment. But like you said, then I think we have to be more. When, and I understand what you're saying by hands on, like have somebody like me maybe come in and tell that story and then they can ask questions. And we have to be able to speak freely as mm -hmm. well because and use the, the same verbiage and the same um, language that that people are using. Let's say, you know, in the streets or when they're in their barracks or at the bar. So it's realistic. Mm -hmm. So we can say, no, that's not how you approach a woman. And no, that's not how you talk to a man or, or vice versa or a woman and, and things like that. So I, I definitely agree with you. Like it needs to be some in your face, fucking kicking the door, hands on type of um, training for this. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It's, um, you gotta have like a, a hands on, like you can touch this part of the back in a gently manner. You go any lower. It's a, it's a little too fucking risky. <laughs> right. And then like, let's say, let's just say for instance, um, about like you and I were were um, even if they brought in actors, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say, but they brought you and I in, and we were in the military, whatever the case may be. Then I would have to be comfortable because we know we practice this. Yeah. You're not gonna grab my ass, but you're gonna go low. I'm gonna say, hey, you know. So it just has to be more realistic yeah. training mm -hmm. like that, because. And I, I think we got to stop sugarcoating shit, you mm -hmm. know, and just say, you know, we, we just have to tell the truth. Because yep. I think we sugarcoat and, and you know, we, we just wire brushing and like, oh, well, that's okay. Well, let's just do it this way. When it's really not happening that way when people are outside of the barracks or um, when they're at work with the, somebody that's sexually harassing them yeah. or you know, raping or molesting them or whatever the case may be. Well, I, I think, too, that uh, I mean, it has to be a scenario training because as so awkward as that is it has you know you have to make it kind of awkward and you have to have those actors that are comfortable right. that can make it legitimate and realistic but mm -hmm. because if you're just learning like dance set through a module you know most of us will look at that and be like yeah no shit i already knew that but the second right. you're placed in a scenario and you're like right. oh shit that might be how i would react to that situation right. and maybe that's the wrong way to react mm -hmm. then it's i think it's more of a learning lesson from there yeah, yeah. This and, and and yeah, that's the word. The scenarios and bring in real life scenarios. Bring in. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get on that topic. Like you know, some of the lyrics and songs, right? Because yep. if you look at some, mm -hmm. listen to some of these lyrics and songs, and people are trying to live that shit. When this dude is home somewhere in a mansion chilling and don't never act like well, whoever's rapping. I say dude, but whoever's doing the rapping, I'm like, are y'all really trying to live how these people are rapping or singing these songs, these lyrics? Because Baby, that ain't true. <laughs> you know? Yeah, true. <laughs> right, um, right. I want to go back into uh, your deployments. I know when we met up, you told me that uh, your second deployment was a little more difficult than your first. And can you explain a little bit more on why that is? Yeah, um, I think I kind of was talking about it a little bit more. So although my responsibility, you know, still taking care of soldiers and, and you know, their well-being and accountability and things like that, um, the first deployment... I think because it was more 
it was tougher because death is is bad. Tragedy like that, losing a life is bad anyway. Mm -hmm. We lost one soldier on the first deployment. On the second deployment, I saw so much um, carnage and so much uh, just destruction of young soldiers, mm -hmm. you know, bodies and just so much death and so much blood. And and not because I was outside of the wire, I was in firefights. I was not. We were on Kandahar. Uh, we were in Kandahar in Afghanistan, yep. and our hospital was the main hospital that all the soldiers came through before they went back to the States. Mm. Um, and then they also, you know, we did our hero ceremonies, our mm. ramp ceremonies. If a soldier um, unfortunately passed away, you know, we would, you know, for them to go back to the States, you know, we have our ramp ceremony where we give them a hero's um, sound off to back to their family members and things like that. But yeah. I think that was just uh, even harder then because that deployment, it just started like bringing up so much stuff from my past. And because those young soldiers that that we saw, they were all males, you know, mm -hmm. um, maybe it was maybe one female. I'm not sure, but maybe one female, if I could rem remember, but all males. And they were young, like 18, 19, yeah. you know, and you're talking about double amputees, triple amputees. That's crazy. Just losing, like pints and pints and pints of blood and just body is just destroyed. And it just, I think it just took a toll on me um, mm. just mentally and just, you know, emotionally, like I just couldn't cope. I couldn't deal. Mm -hmm. I, could, I, I couldn't imagine for an extended deployment either. Cause um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was in, uh, in, uh, in Bagram uh, for a period of time. And we were there, I think, only for two months, but it was the main headquarters of Joint Special Operations Command. So um, anytime somebody within JSOC or Special Operations passed, there was always a ceremony for them every single right. time. And right. the time that I was there, it sent, it seemed like it was every you know two or three days that we were having a ceremony. And I started getting pissed. Like I was actually angry that this was happening because... For me, I was like, I don't, for one, want to take part in these ceremonies anymore because I'm tired of having to think about, you know, what happened. And then also I was pissed because why is this still happening? Kind of thought like, why aren't we pushing the enemy more? Why aren't we taking the fight mm -hmm. to them more? Um, so it was that kind of mentality that honestly, a lot of us got, you know, I think a little bit more, you know, geared up. Um a little bit more pissed off wanting to, you know, cause more, I guess, you know, take, take the fight. Like I said, take the fight to the enemy. And we wanted to do a lot more and whatever we, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Right. You know, you just want to go in and just fight and just kick everybody's ass because it's, it's, it's just, just, just fucking just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And, and we went to every time a soldier came into Kandahar into the hospital, we went over because, you know, the chaplain, the CG, his staff, me, my commander, it was our, you know, we were in charge right there in the 82nd when we were there. And to go in and see those soldiers and and and, and I would tell you, most of them were unconscious, right? Like I'm going to get all the emotion shit. Most of them were unconscious, but the ones that were not unconscious, they were, you know, the general, you know, salute them and they would try their damnness. They fucking the pride and the 
the, the honor mm -hmm. that these soldiers had to salute back and to say, where's my battle buddy? Can I go back out? And he didn't even realize like his leg is missing, his arm is missing. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. And then, but this shit is still happening outside the wire, just over and over and over. Zero two in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock. It didn't matter what time of day that hospital was full, and those fucking doctors performed, I mean, magic mm -hmm. to get them, you know, stable enough to go back to the states um, to to get the medical care that they needed. Well, Germany and then the states to get the medical care that they needed. I mean, it was just like you said. It was just. It just pisses you off. Mm -hmm. You wanna, you just wanna go and and fucking destroy the enemy for destroying who we love and what we are, which mm -hmm. is our fellow. Like you said, that's our fucking family. Now that's family, right? Yep. You know, you, you right. You don't want anything to happen to your brothers and sisters, to your fucking family. Although I did not know one of those soldiers, I looked at every last one. I'm like, they were my kids because mm -hmm. I got a 34 year old and a 28 year old now. You know. And I'll be damned, me and my commander said, we are not ever going to not come here to see a soldier off. Because think if everybody would have stayed in their hooch, in their, mm -hmm. you know, in their beds that night and said, ah, uh, Dan's going, so I'm going to sleep. Or, oh, you know, Bo might go. No, we went every time the call came, no matter what time it was. We got up, we put our uniform on, our boots on. And we went over there to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Whether if, if it was only for five minutes, just to make sure, just to see that soldier and send him off. Because I would want somebody to do that for my for my kids. Yep. You know, you want somebody to do that for your sisters or whoever, right? So it was just terrible. There's there's um there's actually one veteran in the book that I'll I'll leave his name off the record, but <clears throat> just because you mentioned Germany, it was interesting to hear that you know he was hit by an IED <clears throat> and it took off both his legs and part of his right arm and woke up in Germany, not realizing what happened. And then went through like, I think it was close to like 70 surgeries before mm -hmm. he actually got to go back to the States. And it was multiple months in the hospital. And just like, that's insane to think about, especially how young, like these men and right. women are. Yeah, you know, and they're, they're, they are, I mean, shit. I don't, Again, I want to. I don't want to use the wrong words to, because I can't, I don't know how anyone else is feeling. I can only say like what, I think, and then my perception or experience, like they're fucking maimed forever, right? Mm -hmm. And then, like you know, soldiers, like we know about amputees, but just we had soldiers to come in. His his stomach, his intestines were on the outside of his. You know what I'm saying? So they have to leave it out so that he can now be stable enough to fly to get. I'm like, what kind of injuries are those IEDs Jeez. and mm -hmm. those rocket uh, RPGs? They did damage like I've never even heard of in my life. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, I've never seen in my life dog tags blowing off, you know, because a lot of the guys tied their dog tags on their boots. Right. Mm -hmm. You step on an IED, where's the dog tag going straight up? Right. Yeah. And that's where they dog tags in their rectum, in their insides and just shattering them. And it's just I just it's just. You're right. You just want to fucking just kick somebody's ass for like hurting your family, for hurting yeah. your friends, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it just wasn't good. That that that's what made that second deployment even tougher, yeah. you know, even it, more difficult. It, it's so many of these things like the unspoken things that don't make it into movies, into books, into whatever media that's out there that I think. You know, th that's part of the reason why we're doing this is because more, more and more people need to hear these stories. More and mm -hmm. more people need to understand the full impact that it wasn't just one person got injured. It was, yes, that person's life was changed forever 
but their injury also impacted the lives of every single person they served with Mm -hmm. and every single person that had to you know was responsible for the the transfer the treatment the recovery the surgeries every single person along that line was impacted in some way or another so it wasn't just one casualty it was one casualty in the trickle down effect of everybody else that that person's life touched and just you know just again the life-saving uh procedures and the talents of the doctors and and uh just all the medical staff you know, we don't think about that like, oh, the soldiers, in it, but just, just, I mean, they had these, uh, I don't know what they were called, these bags that they would bring them in to keep them heated with the, so the blood and all this, whatever the technique or whatever that was that they did. And I tell you, I can see it to this day that the, they had unzipped the bag and fucking pints and pints and it was just the smell and the blood and just, and they were rushing them into the, to the OR and I just was like, like you could see everybody's trying to stand around like the entire staff with this look on their face like, you know, I'm tough, but fucking nothing but tears just. And, that is, and that's not saying, oh, you know, the general's weak or the, the colonel's weak or the sergeant major's weak. Fucking your heart. Because you're yep. thinking about this, 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 this man and his family and his mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think about their moms and their dads and their wives and their children and mm-hmm. just. And just, just the doctors, I'm telling you, the medical staff is just amazing. They take care of our, um, you know, in war and, and, and all that. It takes care of our, our, our injured. What, what yeah. do you think, uh, not to stray too far off the topic, but what do you think your experience was like, you know, being um, a senior enlisted NCO or being a female at that? What struggles came along with that? Yeah, I think uh, for me, um, some of the struggles were... You know, I always say when I'm talking to people that I, I don't, I don't try to prove myself. I just try to be myself. Mm -hmm. But the more I say that, the more I think like, well, yeah, maybe you do have to kind of prove yourself a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Whatever that. And although I was being myself, I wasn't accepted as being myself. And that wasn't the entire case, you know, but I had to earn the respect of my male counterparts. Um, I had to be damn they're more physically fit than they were now mind you i forget that i'm in a male dominated union unit mm-hmm. right even being on the trail uh being a drill instructor and even you know spending most of my time in the 82nd i had to um earn their respect by knowing my damn job being confident in what i'm doing um you know being skilled in what i'm doing I- i'm a, a paratrooper so i'm a, a senior jump ma- a master jump master so I have to know everything there is just like they do. So I think sometimes it's the, they have the what if mentality of what if she messed up? Like they're waiting on me to like, oh, there she, I knew it. Or, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not all, that's not all, you know, and I'm talking about male dominant. That wasn't all, all, all men and, and all, all people because it was a lot of um, my uh, senior um uh, senior leaders that wanted me to succeed, wanted me to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a lot that did not want me to succeed. You know, I was set up for failure a couple of two, three, ten times. Right. Yep. But I knew my job. I was confident in what I was doing. You know, was, like on the trail, I would, you know, be told that we were marching at this time and I come and they're gone already. They may have left early. And it was these tricks that used to be played and different stuff like that to try to make you fail. Um, that guys would come up with these schemes um, the night before or a week before to try to make, uh, make me fail. But 
Um, I knew what I was doing. I'll give myself a you know <laughs> pat on the back, to brush your shoulders off. I, I was pretty damn good at, at at my job, and and I knew that going in to these type of units that I had to be extra great. So I may have done you know physical training three times a day, where <laughs> man, one day maybe you only had to do it one time a day. You know now yeah. you know I never. Um, I know that, you know, statistically and, and physically speaking, that men are stronger than women and, and faster in this stuff. But um, I had my fair share. I beat a couple, two, three of them, you know. I, I <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was that kind of thing. Um, but I think I did um, earn the respect of those that were true gentlemen, mm-hmm. men, uh, have an open mind soldiers. Now, there were some that just were assholes, just like we're talking about the people that rape people and molesters, right? You got yeah. assholes there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you, you know, you have your mindset and you were, in many ways, very, very successful, right? I right. know you, you had a lot of hurdles, a lot of hurdles yeah. to overcome, mm-hmm. but you got to a command sergeant major position and a lot of females can't even attain that you know what i mean and it, it's because they have those hurdles and maybe something happened and they deviated from the plan or whatever the case may be so what what advice have you given or would you give to females that that want to see themselves in a senior position in the military right uh, never give up mm-hmm. you know don't quit again you have to have a seat at the table when someone says that you can't do something again if you meet the prerequisites for that i say try it you know just keep doing it until something sticks that you like or something sticks that you love i knew that um i was a you know i was physically fit you know i kept physically fit um so i wanted to take those tough jobs that challenged me mm-hmm. you know and you want to go places where I guess it's few and far between. Mm-hmm. Like I knew the 82nd is not a lot of females. Being on a trail is not a lot of females, right? Uh, I keep saying trail. I want people to understand as being a drill instructor. You're not yeah. a lot of females. So if I get to come back to my duty assignment and say, you know, um, you know, I was a drill instructor, or you can do it too, or females would see me and say, well, what does that patch mean? Well, I was a drill instructor. Or, what do those wings mean? Or I'm a master parachutist. Oh, how did you do that? This is all you have to do, or you have to do this to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so just by, um, I think my drive of wanting to lead the way and set the example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 82nd Airborne has this one, uh, one of their many models: lead, follow, or get out of the way. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Were there any, as you were a drill instructor, were there any young men that had a crush on you? You're nodding your head, yes, being quiet. <laughs> They're playing kiss ass and shit. I was, uh, how old was I? This is a drill instructor. I was in my 30s. Yeah. Right? So you may have a 30 something year old come through or a 20 something year old come through, and, you know, I was really in good shape then. <laughs> They're like, damn, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, yeah, I was in really good shape then. And, um, yeah, but uh, again, uh, you know, just being, uh, you got to be professional and, yep. and that, that you can't allow that kind of shit to of happen. And, and, you know, being firsthand, uh, I guess, survivor, victim, whatever the hell you want to call it, um, for me, um, I, I knew that, you know, you couldn't do stuff like that. I, I, I've probably, honestly, I want, I would have loved to see it because I have a feeling you were a no bullshit person. Oh, like, yeah. A no bullshit yeah. drill instructor. Yeah. I was like, yeah. you know, a lot of embarrassment. <laughs> you know, you can kind of say, like, if you don't get 
the hell out of here. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're trying to come up and lean up, uh, you know, hey, drill sorry. I would, Jimmy, get the fuck out of here. And then, <laughs> so I'll go by I tell you, I, I still got a potty mouth. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, you know, you just got to kind of be hard and stern and, and, and let them know, hey, this, this, this ain't like that. This, uh-huh. this ain't going on. I'm yeah. going to train you, get your ass to your assignment so you can go out here and fight and win wars if that's the case. Not trying to be flirting okay you spend all that effort i want to see you run that damn pt test in the morning <laughs> you to yeah i just was telling i was just telling dan i'm about to smoke you on the run in the yep. morning. Oh, shit. <laughs> i was just telling dan i don't i don't trust people that don't have a potty mouth like i get for like you know religious reasons and stuff like that but i feel oh, like yeah. you got it people that don't cuss at all there's something weird yeah, you know, it's, it's a lot of a lot of uh, words in the vocabulary. I just choose to use these shit. Man. Yeah, yeah, they sound better. Sometimes I remember one time I was having a conversation. That I think we were at the CG's house at the Commanding General's home for something. A lot of stuff happened at the CG's at the Commanding General's home, right? So I think we're over there, and it, it, again, mostly men, right? So although the wives were there. But they're thinking I'm one of the wives, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm a so because we're all in civilian clothes and the guys over cussing and talking. It was like, oh, pardon my French. I said, I speak fucking French. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, come That's on in. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Come on. You're one of us. <laughs> so where has, uh, obviously, we know that, uh, you know, you're heavily involved with certain organizations, which we'll get into in a minute. But mm-hmm. maybe I want to kind of go more in depth on where your life has taken you after your military service. Right, right. Yeah. So I retired in 2014 mm-hmm. and I was in uh, I retired out of the Pentagon. Once we came back from deployment, they sent most of the seniors to the Pentagon okay. to work on the staff. That's what we call staff work. Um, mm. not, now we're not in the field pretty much um, out working. So went to the Pentagon and in 2014, I retired. And then I went to work for Department of Homeland Security uh, for about a year and a half. I just couldn't do the DC area. It was just, yeah, the Virginia DC area. It wasn't for me. So I said, you know what? I'm going to resign from my job um, and move somewhere. Didn't know where I was going to move, but I was like, you know, I moved every two, three, four years anyway. It's no big deal. Um, so I decided on the Atlanta, Georgia area. Yeah. Um, came down here and uh, took some time to um, get my stuff together, meaning mentally and emotionally and all that stuff. Because in 2012, when I came back from deployment, I, I knew something wasn't right. And I said, you know, I need to go and get some help. So I went and got some help in 2012, mental mm-hmm. help, mental um, health uh, help. And uh, so I've been in counseling since 2012. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Just recently, uh, I was seeing my doc every week just recently here. Um, now it's once a month. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. able to, you know, kind of trying to walk this walk on my own. You know, I've been telling them about the different podcasts. This helps me so much. I, you know, journal, that helps me so much. Yeah. Um, I was talking about the medical profession uh, professionals in Kandahar, the medical professionals here at Emory Hospital at the VA Wounded Warrior Project. Um, and it's not medical professionals, um, veteran resources, Wounded mm-hmm. Warrior Project. I'm telling you without those three here, when I got to Atlanta, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I really don't know. I was very, I mean, like extremely depressed. Um, just coming here, you know, I, I'm, I'm single. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and it's just, it just was a lot. It, it was just a lot. And oh, I, a lot I don't of know, weight. Yeah, 
yeah, really, it was just it's a lot. And I just felt burdened. I mean, I carried a lot of weight as a child, right? I ran from that and I came in the military and carried some weight there. I ran, you know, not ran, but then I went over here and I got all. So it still was all this weight was just bearing me down, bearing me down. I used to tell my counselor, like, I feel like I'm in quicksand and mm-hmm. like I keep I come up for air. And I'm like, OK, and I keep and I go right back down like something is pulling me down. But yeah, it was um the transition was extremely difficult mm-hmm. um, from the military. And I, like I said, I worked the civilian job for for a little while, and it was nothing, you know, wrong with working at the Department of Homeland Security, a, a, a great organization, great government organization to work for. I'm used to <laughs> doing things a certain way, you know. We got good order and discipline. You're supposed to be to work on time. You're supposed yeah. to be in the right type of clothing. You're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to do your job, do your mission until it's complete, and. Um, and I sometimes I felt like um, my talent, my skills, my experiences were not um, used the right way. Like I could have said, you know, I guess what what was what I was saying and what I was given was not um, necessarily taken. Other people thought because they have acronyms behind their names like PhD or mm-hmm. all this stuff like you know SES like they know more but that wasn't the case and we're all here trying to serve and complete a mission I think you have to be able to you know you hired me for a certain thing so that that was a little difficult trying to learn the civilian way but I um got here in Atlanta you know like I said under the help with my my medical professionals and counselors yeah uh, I started going to an organize what well, to a you know, getting out more, going to different organizations and doing different things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one organization was called Merging Vets and Players, MVP. Mm-hmm. So I used to go out there once a week. They would do, which was right up my alley because it was a lot of physical activity. This was pre-COVID. Yeah. And it was some MMA style kickboxing stuff. I was like, oh, this shit is fun, right? right. And it kept my mind off, you know, I got some good um, a good workout, good exercising. And then we would go into this hour huddle where people you know, veterans and former players, because our transition is kind of parallel, you mm-hmm. know, they've been in the uniform for so long, they're good, you know, used to good order and discipline and time and this time management and stuff. So we're just getting this huddle and just talk about our transition and talk about our experiences. And that's how it started up with MVP. And they had a program manager here for Atlanta. And he went on and started his own organization, um, you know, resigned and did some other things, kind of like JC, right? Yep. Started, mm-hmm. you know, it, look what MVP is building, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I volunteered until they hired somebody else. And it was like, after about seven months, it was like, well, we want to hire you. I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> so, and, and it comes easy because I get to, you know, mentor. I get to lead again. I get to have purpose. I get to have that connection. Mm-hmm. I get to not be in charge, but be in charge again because I'm taking care of people, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, get I- to serve. If I could say a comment too, like as somebody who's come to a few different MVP sessions for the Atlanta chapter, like you do an incredible job. You really do. Cause there's, there's often times where, um, you know, the facilitator, the person who's running a lot of sessions where a lot of people are talking and, and there's a lot of input in different areas. Like Tanya takes notes on everything that people are saying. She writes it down and then she recaps and reminds everybody the important parts, the, the key takeaways from mm. each individual's like input throughout the session. And so it is it, truly incredible. And like, if, I don't know if anybody is ever a facilitator, like I, I feel like whatever you are doing, that model is what people should do is like, pay attention, listen, you know, have, have that active listening, take notes mm-hmm. and recap and remind people, you know, 
exactly what everybody said and what was important in that. Yeah, you know, I, I um I appreciate that. Thank you. Because again, I do my own AAR. I don't want to be the one person focus group, but mm-hmm. I'll call some people after. Well, now they already know. They'll call me after and say, hey, you know, this is, I think you can prove here. Because it's not for me, but it's for me too. Mm-hmm. But it's for the members. You know what I'm saying? It's like, again, it's like my soldiers, like still taking care of people. Yeah. Um, so Nate Boyer and Jay Glazer, you know, came up with this amazing organization mm-hmm. to, they created for combat veterans and, and former athletes. And we have amazing people like um, kickboxing champions, Tim Lane out in LA and Tommy Rodriguez out in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan Quinn, he's joined us previously. He was the coach of the uh, Atlanta Falcons, head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Now he's out with Dallas and he's, you know, they're busy now, but he's joined us on several occasions. We have uh, just all walks of life mm-hmm. from veterans, Nikki West, you know, yourself, Dan, Blakely, mm-hmm. you know, just amazing people that come in on these uh, on these um, sessions and we're able to learn so much from them. And then we're able to heal in that group. And it's a safe space to just fucking just talk and vent, you know? Yeah, I thought it was really cool hearing it even from Nate when I met up with Nate in L.A. Right. and took his photo for this book when he was telling me a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Personally, what do you think the most challenging thing about transitioning back to the civilian industry is like for yourself? Ah, oh, man, I think the most challenging thing is accepting for, 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 for a veteran is translating what we do, mm-hmm. right? Translating what we do for the civilian piece, because we do so much. It's kind of like Rastaman. You got all these different jobs. You can do so much. Yep. But just translating what we do. And then that being to give us a chance and in, in, in accepting us in this workspace. Now I'm not talking about being a doctor or a lawyer that, but if you put me in a job, I probably can do it if it's not a specialty something, because they're gonna get OJT, right? On the job training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then having the civilian world accept us that we can do these things, that you have to accept our experience and not have to, but we're asking that you accept our experience and our talents and our skills. Because if I've done 30 years at a senior level, I probably could be the CEO of Amazon or one of these Bitcoin because it's about it's the same. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, just like colonels and you know senior officers where I may not have a Ph.D. or these acronyms behind it, but I got experience and boots on the ground with people. Yeah. At the end of the day, one of my favorite commanders told me uh, his name is Dave Leach that Leadership is a people's business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You understand that and get that and you take care of people. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. They're going to have the confidence and respect in you to, to follow you damn near anywhere. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I was telling Bo this. Uh, actually, you, you hit on it perfectly. Uh, I was telling Bo this, I think, yesterday in the car uh, on our travels back is uh, I told him I was if there's one thing that the military taught me and especially after going to college now is that. I could have done anything like I literally could have gone to any class at any time, learned anything. It's literally just time and commitment to memorize and, you know, soak in as much information and do your own research or whatever. Just spend the time and commitment to it to do it. And it's something in the military that you learn and it's ingrained in you. And then the other part you hit on is is that transition and those soft skills that people don't understand in the civilian world 
that it is hard for us as you know former military members to translate into civilian lingo mm -hmm. and i it's so frustrating because we've actually talked about it on here a few times is when it comes to officers i don't know what it is but in the civilian world when they see an officer a general officer and they see colonel lieutenant colonel mm -hmm. major even captain it doesn't matter they mm -hmm. see something like that on their resume instantly yep. boom right to the top it's like they're meant Listen. to lead they're they, they're the head of this organization yeah yeah and you know uh, right so i retired at e9 a command sergeant mm -hmm. major you can't get any fucking higher you can't go past e9 mm -hmm. like you there's no there's no e10 right so you're telling me that i can't do the same thing that and i work side by side with a lieutenant colonel and a full bird colonel that i can't go in and do be in charge but he or she can that's a ceo <laughs> you know position so, so frustrating um trying to find a job and even before i you know was looking for a job when i came here to atlanta in the government and went on some interviews and i just felt fucking dumb and worthless and just like damn for real like all this stuff that I, and I did another resume and another resume and I was like I, I can't I, I just can't mm -hmm. you know so I started working on some of my own personal projects and then of course you know MVP kind of came around and then they you know asked me to be a part of you know to come on as a as an employee but um yeah it's just so difficult because I know I could be making a difference either even in other places you yeah, know absolutely I that I could, you know because I get to do this and you know give advice and consult and you know uh, um yeah you know facilitate that's what that's what we're doing right and mm -hmm. and, and to help out and um, provide people with resources and and listen and, and that kind of thing and communicate that back um so it, it it just makes you feel it made me feel like like i was worthless yeah yeah so from yeah. your what, from your experience then what do you think would be the best route or the best kind of blueprint for other veterans who are you know, struggling with post-transition or they're looking for the right organizations to connect to, you know, what routes or what steps should they be taking first? Yeah. The first thing I'm going to say is start early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A one year trying to transition from the military is just not enough. I yeah. spent 30 years and I get one year to try you know, start transition. Right. So start early, start um, figuring it out, excuse me, what you love not some not what somebody's telling you like oh you should do this or do that and then also maybe get some of that input as well right mm -hmm. and then figure out like what you really love you may have to try a couple of two three mm -hmm. four five things to see what really sticks and what really you know works with you because like i said department of homeland security while i was still serving i wasn't like like now i'm hands-on i get hands-on with, yeah. with members every day and it's just a different feeling so i some people say, oh, you have to do this and you must go this route. And this is the blueprint. No, try some shit, do some different things. But you got to I think you have to give yourself time. I only had that year to transition and you have to start early, maybe three, four years out. Maybe you want to get some certificates. Maybe you want to go to school. Maybe you want to, you know, do a little intern here and there. Take take some leave, you know, take some vacation and do some things like that. But you have to set yourself up Um for success yeah. and don't wait until the last minute, but try multiple, multiple things and find the right people to network with. You know, I think that again, leadership is a people's business, find the right people to network with and, and be honest. I think once you now get the job, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to interview being so honest, but you know, especially if it's something you want to do it and get the job and say, Hey, you know, I really would like to, you know, 
be a SES one day. Could you groom me? Could you yeah. help me? I would love to be a whatever, uh, a senior leader in this position. And could you help me? People would do that. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. that's one of my faults too. I didn't, I was so independent and so gung ho. I never asked anybody to help me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, know, you got to you know, get your foot in the door. A team, but I didn't go out and seek out, you know, a mentor or, you know, that. And I, and I could have looking back now. So I would say that, you know, go out, seek out a mentor, mm-hmm. seek out someone that you trust. But you got to start early. I, I would say yeah. that's the best thing for anybody is to to find a mentor mm-hmm. uh, with anything yeah. in life. Find somebody a little older yeah. than you. Sometimes, hell, they're even younger than you. But just yeah. somebody to help bring you in and kind of teach you the basics. But I mean, yeah. you're not going to get anywhere unless you put your foot in the door as difficult as that may be. I would imagine, you know, the transition is is difficult for a lot of these men and women to where they just lose hope and faith and they're like, fuck it. I don't yeah. want to go through all that hard work. But I mean, you're going to keep digging yourself deeper at that point. Yeah. You might as well just be like, you know what? Fuck it. It's worth a shot. I'll try and try and try until something lines up. Yeah. And it, like I said, there's so many amazing veteran service organizations. Oh, yeah. MVP, we're not a veteran service organization. We're peer to peer. However, you know, there's enough people in there, myself and plenty of others. We have five chapters, New York, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Chicago and Atlanta. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have and we're, we're building more chapters. So, you know, you have organizations like MVP, you have the Wounded Warrior Project, you have the Warrior Alliance, you have Hire Heroes. I mean, it's so many different um, veteran service organizations that somebody's going to put you in touch with somebody and somebody and somebody yep, to yep. help you out. And it, 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 because you will, I know firsthand, I was in that bed back there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And the more I laid in the bed, the more depressed I got, mm-hmm. the more depressed I got, the more sick I got, yep. the more sick I got, the more I didn't want to do it. And it just, it's just this circle. And um, I don't want anyone to feel like, like I was feeling. And if this helps somebody, um, you know, come on the MVP, you know, hit me up on the MVP, go to the MVP website. We can help, you know, help you out as much as we can. But yeah, you have, you have to reach out and not be so independent and think that you are the only one that's going through because you are not the only one going through and someone else can help you mm-hmm. get through it a little bit easier. We'll definitely uh, link uh, MVP's links uh, in this podcast oh, in yeah. case people want to check it out or they want to get more info um, and they can ask for you, Tanya, obviously. But um, can you kind of tell us more just because I think we're generally interested to hear more about MVP on the day-to-day, like what does your day-to-day kind of look like with operations and what is kind of the future of, you know, growing that organization to help more veterans? Right. So on a day-to-day, um, being the program manager for the Atlanta chapter, um, uh, outreach. So, you know, we're, you know, outreach and spreading the word about the mission of MVP again, mm-hmm. bringing combat veterans and, and uh, professional at- former professional athletes together in a peer to peer huddle. Like I said, we do a fitness piece of exercise for the first 30 minutes and then a peer to peer huddle to share our experiences and our stories right? yeah. uh, of transition and life. Right. Because we, we're all here to learn. Uh, you know, I'm always a student. So and then so my day to day, you know, I'm, we're doing uh, I'm doing uh, outreach with the different veteran service organizations within the community, whether it's um, uh, Chamber of Commerce, uh, whether it's um, it could be a police station, whatever, because we're veterans are everywhere. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the um, um, the VFW, the VA, uh, any of those organizations trying to do outreach to spread the word um, of the mission of MVP. On um, once a week, I have our, you know, we, I do my huddles. 
Um, so that's up until about nine o'clock at night. So in, Tuesdays are, it's on Tuesdays. So Tuesdays are my late nights. Yeah. And then again, through the week, you know, we're doing, I'm doing admin work um, for the organization, uh, whether it's accountability, rosters, reports, and that thing. And, and again, out here talking to our, to our veteran community and to our uh, community that supports veterans. That's great. And so mm-hmm. are you guys working with like a lot of former like Atlanta Braves, uh, you know, Atlanta Falcons kind of players then in, in your area? Right. So, you know, again, it's the networking and, and the connections, right? So we are connected with the Atlanta Falcons yeah. and we're now being connected with the soccer team mm. and then Hope, you know, on the, with hoping with the Atlanta Braves, and I'm sure you know it, it, it's not. It's no doubt that they will hopefully support us, and I'm sure they will. Oh, you know, definitely. Right, great people around here in the Atlanta area, um, and throughout the, the different uh, areas where uh, our chapters are. Now we are expanding. We will grow. Um, I think our next chapter will be in Dallas, um, and I also think we're opening a chapter in Tampa, Florida. Nice. Because um, right now I have the Southeast region, mm-hmm. um, so we're down by regions right gotcha yeah we're we're steadily growing yeah that's really cool yeah absolutely um you know you you hit on it but i I wanted to go back and i don't want to like go back too far but you were talking about Mm -hmm. the transition and and uh these organizations like mvp are so important because um you know my piece of advice for a lot of people that are transitioning is you're never going to find anything exactly like what you had in the military you're never going right. to find it. You're never going to find a job exactly like what you had in the military. It just doesn't exist. You can find some incredible people like who you served with, mm-hmm. and you can find a job that maybe has a lot of the same roles and responsibilities, but you're never going to have the same experience, the same job, the same career, the same outlook, the same mission as you did in the military. So mm-hmm. finding ways to fill those gaps is the best way to succeed. So one of these is obviously connecting with fellow veterans. So, you know, places like MVP are fantastic because that is exactly the platform. It's talking and interfacing with fellow veterans. And it just has that added bonus of being able to also talk to former players because it puts you Mm -hmm. on a a different playing field where, you know, you can relate in different ways Mm -hmm. and speak. Yes, maybe different language, but in a, a, a similar um, interaction and si- similar experiences. Like it, it's just a, a really cool organization. And, and like I said, the biggest thing is just, you know, try f- and find ways to fill the missing pieces from your military experience. Right. Right. And I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. We may not uh, ever get that feeling like you had in the military, that service and that time, probably no matter how long you stayed in, especially somebody who did mm-hmm. 20, 30, you know, 30 something, 40 years in the military is like, that was my life. That was more of my life than I was when I was a child because I went in at 19, right? Mm-hmm. So again, uh, organizations like Merging Vets and Players, you know, MVP gives us gives us that. And because when you hear a, a a professional athlete, whether from the NFL or you know the MB Major League Baseball, yep. MB, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> Major League, whatever that that profession is, and when a, when you hear an athlete say, "Oh, I had trouble trying to figure out what my next career, next job, you're like, yeah, but you're rich. That has nothing to do with it. They, mm-hmm. you know, you hear this in the huddle. That money has nothing to do with it. It's like my purpose, like I'm lost, like I'm hollow in the inside. And then you, you, you then they talking on the, we're, we're on Zoom now when we were in person, same thing. And then you make that connection across the room and, you know, and they're not crying because they are 
sad or weak. It's just like, what a relief. Like, oh, wow. You you understand where I'm coming from? Like, right. That resonates with you. You can relate. And when a vet gets over or, or a player gets over and walks over the end and they hug each other like, man, and now you become friends. And now this this mm. love is spread and yeah. it trickles down. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing to to see that happening. That's it's cool. How, how was the... Uh the experience kind of like with COVID and everything, like what were you guys? Cause I know um, you guys are doing like a lot of big group calls and all mm -hmm. that. Um, but what was that personally like for you to have to deal with a pandemic and still try and get people involved with workouts and keep them motivated? Yeah. Now that, that is difficult, right? Yeah. <laughs> Cause again, like we were talking earlier, being that scenario and that hands-on, we are human. So we want to be around people and have that connected. Oh yeah. We need that connection. Um, Right. So it's just that's tough all around with the Zoom, you know, what they call it now, Zoom fatigue or mm. Teams fatigue or something. Yeah. But I would say to that is don't let that uh, that type, type of talk or that narrative stop you from coming into whatever group you're going into, because it's, it's not like I said, we'll never get that feeling back. It's not like being in person, but it's damn sure close. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's damn sure close. You know, that's why I try to change it up in my Zooms and do different things and mm -hmm. not whereas, you know, we're talking about, you know, oh, I transition and then blah. No, we want to do different things. I, I think I had a um, scavenger hunt one time and that was just to get the members out of the house because it was like when COVID first started, people were going insane. Oh, yeah being at home all the time. It's nothing where they had to be around people, but, you know, find a yellow Dodge charger and write the first three lights or something, just fun stuff, you know, <laughs> find a hot dog stand and it got them out of the house and they came back and they had that, they were so excited to tell about the scavenger hunt and, you know, they took their kids or their family with them and they got a chance to do this thing together. So just even all of that, just having that bond, you can still bond virtually. And I think this COVID, although it was, um, bad and tragic for a lot of people, including myself. I lost an aunt to COVID. My youngest mm. son had COVID in August. Mm. Um, he's healthy, strong as an ox, so he's fine. He went through some things there for a minute. So I know personally, you know, firsthand about it. But um, COVID has also brought us some good shit, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, has, it has taught us some stuff, too, that we can still live and operate. I mean, this technology and science and all of this is just I mean, I don't want to get off on the wrong stuff. It's just amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah totally. uh, this is not this this here is not going away. Because once we go back what we're calling hybrid, back into the gym, we will still do virtual. So with that we were talking about that now. We talked about expanding. We're we're gonna be expanding all that technology. We'll be getting all the equipment in, you know, into our gyms. We'll be doing it virtually. Yeah. And we'll be doing it hybrid. That's because awesome. if I have somebody in Kentucky that's part of my, you know, part of the southeast region. Kentucky Southeast region. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> part of the Southeast region or somebody that's in Florida, that's part of the South. They can't make it to my, to the gym here. Mm -hmm. So they yep. still get to be a part of the Southeast region until we can open up a, um, a, a, a chapter in, in a city close to them or in their city. That's really cool. I would imagine eventually you guys would be doing like a Nashville kind of area. Yeah, I'm, you know, Jay and Nate, those guys are fucking beasts, man. They are all over it. They're badasses. They're getting it done, yeah. you know, with the help of, you know, the staff. It's an amazing staff. You know, our headquarters is in, is in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's just amazing people that I work with and colleagues um, that I work with. Yeah. Well, and the members of all the chapters is just making it amazing for all of us. It's great, too, because we've connected with so many people that are part of MVP. And obviously, mm -hmm. we're going to be putting the organization in this book. Um, 
you know, for oh, helping, wow. helping contribute, you know, not only people like yourself, but, um, you know, just helping support, you know, wanting to get veterans involved in organizations mm -hmm. like that. You know, we definitely want to highlight those that are actually making a change in veterans lives, yeah. but that's just, that's really kind of cool to hear more of the inside scoop that I had no idea about, especially with COVID. Right. Yeah. Right. I got a fun question for you. Is it okay. difficult for you dating men who are outside the military? I don't know. You know one? What's that? Oh, do I know one? <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. You know a man that's, that I can date that's not me in the military? I don't, I don't know. I have not dated a man outside the military. All, all the guys that I've dated, like, I'm sounding like a banjo or something. I'm just talking about being a slut and a whore. Right now. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> no, no. Hey, you're like us. You, you got you to be equal. Yeah, I've only dated men in the military. Now, I was married for almost 20 years. I'm divorced. I divorced in 2008. Um, I got divorced from my son's dad in 2008. So, yeah, I have dated, but again, I was in the military. So, I think you kind of date in your, in, your, uh, in your social circle, Yeah. right? Yeah, so I've only dated men in the military, and um, yeah. I wonder if I wonder if that would be different for you then, in a sense that like that was your career, and the reason why I ask is because you were so involved for over thirty years, mm -hmm. so it's like you obviously lived and breathed it. So getting out of that, I'm almost wondering like friendships and relationships if that kind of goes down that same road, or if it would just be difficult in general for you to date somebody that was outside or has never been, you know, enlisted or you know in the military whatsoever. No, um, hmm. I don't know because if I meet someone, I don't want them to go back and listen to this podcast and say, "Well, if you said it'd be hard." Then <laughs> <laughs> We're calling out all the men now and put them on the spot. If you're not in the military, <laughs> get the fuck out. <laughs> hit me up, right? Um, I don't know. I think um, you know. Again, at this age, I'm hoping that they would be mature enough to, because again, I was very successful. Uh, what I did, I you know. Uh, I, I'm financially secure. I, you know, my children are grown, so I'm. I'm if I were to rank myself, I'd probably rank myself from a one to ten, probably about a five or six. I'm I'm pretty average. No, but, you no, know, no, 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 no. seriously, if you're not a one, yeah. I'm not a ten. At least, at least up here in the in the top three. Yeah. No, I can't. I can't like rank myself a ten. I'm not a fucking supermodel. You know, that's not a ten. That kind of just shit and looking all, but you know, because men look at looks and that kind of thing. Let's let's be realistic about it and and that kind of thing. I'm, I don't think I'm a damn. A, a boogaloo or something, you know, that, but yeah, maybe a five or a six, you know, um, but that, that would be interesting. Maybe I'll, uh, once COVID is over, I'll, you know, look at maybe go, going somewhere. The, the looks aren't everything. I, uh, I personally can contest and Dan will also agree. I have a problem with, and I've had it for a long time of having that validation of going after just looks and being like, Oh, nine or 10 model status. Uh, that's all I want. And then it came to a point where I was like, fuck, man, I'm not calling out everybody, but there's All a right. lot of it's just shallow and there's a lot of like lack of substance. You know, there's beautiful people inside and out. And I think that it's there's much more the older I get that I realize that, yes, looks are important to everybody because that's initially what you first look at and what you're attracted to. Mm -hmm. But right. if there's a really like in my, you know, for my taste being women, in my case, if I'm like, fuck, you're a kick ass girl and you're super cool to hang out with and you want to go hiking or go camping or do fun things and you're also like, you know, attractive, that's more 
you know, more valuable than just having something with looks that are eventually going to fade. Absolutely. Right. So for, you know, I can say what I'm looking for, you know, in a man and it's not, you know, say looks and all this kind of stuff. Although, like you said, the first thing we see, mm-hmm. we're attracted is visual. Yeah. Right. Um, but then, you know, you get to know a person and it is because I'm athletic. So, you know, you know, like that, you want somebody that's outgoing and athletic and fun and laugh at my crazy jokes and that. Mm-hmm. And those are the things I want. But I can't when it comes to dating, I'll say in my younger when I was younger, uh, I've learned a lot since being divorced. But, you know, when I started dating after I was divorced, it was kind of difficult because I was still in this um I'm in charge mentality and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And maybe my aura wasn't coming off the right way because I don't think a man, a man wants to be like told what to do and how to do it all the time. I was too fucking bossy. I was too bossy in my day. Like you were, you were intimidating to a lot of men. Yeah. And I don't want to say that because that's what I'm saying. Nobody has ever told me that. Like when I was married to my ex-husband, I was too damn bossy. I talked too much. I was too loud telling him what to do, telling him how to raise our sons, which is his sons. No, you got to kind of know your place. I think it is Mm -hmm. nothing, you know, submissive. I think, you know, a woman has her place, a man has his place when it comes to relationship. And you just got to kind of agree to, and you have to communicate on what's best for your relationship. So, um, Tanya's the one yeah. making the men wear lingerie. Yeah. <laughs> Get upstairs and change now. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. I haven't dated anybody outside the military. Again, it, I've only dated men in the military. But, um, that so, would be interesting. And obviously, you're not about. A man could be intimidated by me. I don't want him to say, right. oh, well, you, you have your own house, your own car. What can I give to you? What can I offer you? Because men, you got, well, thinking, you know, your protectors, your providers, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And if you see me and say, well, she got it going on and she got everything, what can I do for her? Well, hell, a lot, right? I mean, yeah. other than the, the, the physical part, but it's a lot. Like you said, like, all the other fun stuff outside of that and just to get to know each other as as people. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just have things that are in common. And things that are different because you know you can learn from one another. You know, totally. you just gotta be open minded. Yeah. What's interesting, um, is obviously hearing, you know, I think Dan and I look at you as being a successful woman is not only in your military career, but hearing about, you know, the struggles that you faced, um, you know, from a childhood and then growing up, uh, going through your military career, and then, you know, obviously signing with MVP and your other jobs. I'm curious to know out of the success stories of your life, what is like one struggle that you still deal with to this day? Yeah, I think the struggle that I deal with is um, I'm trying still to learn not to be so independent Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, to, to, yeah, to not be so independent and to, um, not want to still like be in charge. Not, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. give so much advice sometimes. Like I think sometimes I can over talk people because I want to help so much that I don't, I, I just kind of can step back and let them do it or figure it out. Yeah. And that's, I think that's part of me that still wants to serve and help so much. And it like, I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I know the answer to that. Like, Oh, I know, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, let me tell you how to do this. So yeah, I think sometimes it, it, that I need to, just relax and kind of let people figure it out. And if they need my advice or my help, then they will ask. Yeah. That I don't have to be so cushy with that. I um, mean, and, and, and then my being too independent. 
like not still asking for um, help or a mentor or mm-hmm. how to start this business. Like, oh, I'll just do it on my own because I don't want anybody to say that. I don't want to say that, oh, they owe me something or have them say that they owe me something. I think as long as it comes from the right place, there's one way to step away from being so independent all the time and accepting critique or accepting, you know, people's opinions. But the other thing that is relatable is, you know, obviously I think it just comes from being passionate, you know, like you said, of wanting to help people. Sometimes you push people Mm -hmm. away at the same time because they don't see your intentions. You know, only you're going to see that and feel that internally. So I think that comes from just being passionate and having that drive to want to help people. It's just expressing it maybe a way that people don't understand. And and maybe that's where it all comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my my goal here is to, you know, I'm reading some books and, uh, you know, listening more and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, taking it all in with a grain of salt because, you know, you just got to be a student and, and you got two ears and one mouth. So you need to listen a little bit more. For me, I do, you know. So, yeah. Well, after 30 years of service for you, um, you know, what what makes you want to continue to serve others? Yeah, it just gives me like, you know, joy. Like, that's like my sweet spot. I used to play a lot of softball. I was pretty good at softball. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, slow pitch, slow pitch, not fast (laughs) pitch. And, you know, when the ball ball hit the bat and and you hit the crack of that bat and and you know it's a home run, right? Or you know it's a, a good base hit. That's that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just continuing to serve is a sweet spot. And I tell you, MVP and and uh, and Nate and and Jay has given me the opportunity to do that, um, or with with MVP and, and just um, you know, I, I get to be relatable. I get to still consult, right? Yeah. I get to um, still give that advice and facilitate, and helps me to to take that seat back and then be able to let people talk and to listen more. And I'm not so in charge and in your face. So um, it gives me purpose. It gives me, gives me uh, that connectedness again. That's awesome. And yeah, that's incredible too. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, to kind of relate to what Bo was saying is, you know, after 30 years of, of service and continuing to serve others, you know, what would, and I asked this earlier kind of, but in a different context, what would be your advice for say somebody who didn't serve as long, somebody with a, a you know, four year enlistment or, you know, six years enlistment and things like that, that are looking to continue to serve? Like how, how does one be able to get to a point where they can do what you do? Um, again, you know, first I think you have to be self-aware, right? And, 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 and people said, well, you got to be self-aware. You got to love yourself and you got to get to know yourself. I was like, hell, I don't want to know me. I don't want to be around me. Right. So I understand that I get that, but I think you have to reach out again. Don't be so independent, ask for help so that you can understand like what you need and, and who you are even more. Mm -hmm. And if you're a veteran, um, regardless of how long you serve, and if that's what you can still want to continue to do is serve, then I think you have to look in organizations that provide that service. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a veteran organization, uh, whether it's a nonprofit organization, whether it's helping, you know, the elderly. You, you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It's got to yeah. be a service type um, organization because what I did, I worked for Department of Homeland Security, right? That's not a service organization. I was a um, I, I did human resources, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I did, uh, I was, uh, tra- I did travel. I did human resources. So I, that's what I did, admin stuff. But I wasn't serving. Mm-hmm. So I knew, 
you know, while it paid good money, mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm making like all this money and my, my friend's like, why are you going to turn down that good government job? Like, yeah, I wasn't happy. Yeah. You know, yeah. so they have to find something that's going to make them happy. And if it's still serving, I think we have to look, we have to look in those jobs that provide that type of service. Again, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's, you know, serving, helping children, the elderly, people, people, mm-hmm. people, right? Yeah. I'd almost touch on that too, where, I mean, we all got to eat. We all got to keep the lights on. But I would say that, you know, money is is not the solution to everything. And you can't really go into it with that mindset. You got to go into it with, what am I passionate about? What would I want to do mm-hmm. if I was never in the military? You know, what are mm-hmm. my interests? How can I make my connections that I, you know, that people have made in the military to somehow get them closer to those goals or those those passions of theirs? And I think that it's just finding that lack of connection. You know, if they can somehow reach out to people like you or to people like Dan and, mm-hmm. and, um, and get in touch and form that community again, that brother and sisterhood, that's kind of the first step in the right direction. Right. And I'm glad you said that, uh, Bo, because let's say for instance, you know, young soldier gets out and a lot of soldiers that have served and, you know, senior leaders, they feel, oh, I can't take this paying job because what are people going to think about me, right? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not mm-hmm. going to take this job. I have to have a hundred, a, a six-figure job where you're not even happy in that six-figure job. So why not take a medium-level job yep. and then work on what you want, volunteer sometimes. That's, you know, I would say that too, to volunteer, go to the VA. If we're talking about service jobs, we're talking about military veterans. Volunteer at the VA, volunteer at, you know, other nonprofit organizations and get a field and they'll see your work ethic. Yo, look what happened to me. I had... I wasn't thinking about getting a job. I just was volunteering today. Today found somebody. And I, of course, I've heard about that. And I was like, ah, yeah, right. Yep. But I did not want uh, this Atlanta chapter to not have a leader. So, hell, I'm not doing anything. I'm not working. Let me step up to the plate and do this for them. But, yeah, that, that it, like I said, that's, that's what I would do. Um, but you have to find something that works for you. But, oh, by the way, in the meantime, like you said, you got to eat. Yeah. So, um, it may not be paying six figures. It may be 50,000 or 40,000 or 60,000 until you can get what, what you need. And I think a lot of us, sometimes we put our pride and we're going, going to this job every day from nine to five, fucking hating it, coming mm-hmm. home, busting at everybody and mad. And this when you can go work four days a week for $55,000 and yeah. <laughs> $60,000. And then on the one day a week, you're volunteering doing something that you really love until you can, but well, the, the best thing to do is to have a side hustle is to find those jobs that pay 30, mm-hmm. 40, 50,000 a year, your medium yeah. range jobs that most Americans have. Um, but find that job yeah, that keeps I, the lights on. Yeah. Find yeah. the job that keeps the lights on. If you got kids, it keeps food in their mouth. Right. You know, if you got to kind of budget yourself, but find something that you're passionate with that you can spend a couple hours a day outside of your work right. focusing on and building until you get to a point to where that teeter-totter evens out and you got to figure out what side you're willing to push the weight on. Um, and if that means going into, you know, all right, I've figured out what I want to do. I've, I've worked this mediocre job. I've saved up a little bit of money or I've just gotten by, but now I've found the leverage to push into something I'm passionate about. That's when you can go over, but you're not going to have that right away to be like, I want to make a hundred thousand dollars doing what I'm passionate with right out the gate. It's just, it's a miracle for that to happen. And you got to kind of, it's like you said, almost take that ego step back and realize that you are starting over in the civilian world. So whatever you were in the military career, you're no longer anymore. 
You need to right. start over and humble, your, humble, your, humble yourself, but eventually you'll get to there. Right. Yeah. And it does take time. Right. Um, and I think it's the process, too, because then you learn so many different things in the process. Again, if you have an open mind to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of us, uh, you know, you have to maybe even cut your expenses since we're talking about financial. Right. Yeah. So you have to cut your expenses and not have the damn Mercedes Benz or the or whatever it is. And you got kids to feed this because you're not in a hundred thousand dollar plus job. Um, hell, I even it cut mine because there's some other personal projects that mm -hmm. I'm working on. So uh, I used to have a S550 Mercedes Benz. Mm -hmm. It got totaled. <laughs> Probably one of the best things that could have happened to me, you know, because fuck it, I'm driving an S550. Can, can I afford it? Yeah. But could I buy it? Hell yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's <laughs> between you can buy it and you can afford it. Yep. So I'm a retired CSM. I got all this money. I got a da 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 But then I'm like, shit is tight at the end. I'm like, oh, shit. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want to live tight like no, that. No. Unfortunately or fortunately for me, the car got totaled in a really bad accident um, a couple of years ago. Um, so I said, never again. Not right now. Yeah. I'm going to do pay cash for my car. So I'm driving a 2008 used car yep. that I paid cash for. Right. Um, I, I have this job and I'm paying the bills. Um, I'm also getting ready to sell this house that I live in. Bo, you were just here. Yep. <laughs> My house goes on the market on Thursday. By the way, it's downsize. a really nice yeah. house. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really nice house. <laughs> so I'm going to downsize and move into an apartment. Look, it's just me. I'm in a five-bedroom, four-bed house. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just me and my dog. What am I doing? I, it's just collecting dust in the other rooms, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can downsize and then, you know, I can save more money and do some more things and do a lot more things that I can do in retirement. And you mentioned nine to five. And I think they had it during the Super Bowl. She's one of my favorite people, Dolly Parton, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You know, working nine to five, right? What I made so yeah, I can't see. But now I think they did this commercial. She was on the Today Show, like our hustle, like you like hustle, right? Get your hustle on, right? Yep. Working five to nine, that's your hustle, yeah. right? So all these special projects or personal projects that I'm working on. Once I'm done with, you know, MVP and I've done my job, I'm got I got my laptop in my mm -hmm. bed and I'm working on my personal stuff from five to nine. And I still get my eight hours of sleep. Oh yeah, you got a lot more time in the day than I think a lot of people yeah, realize you, got, you do. Absolutely. You've got at absolutely. least, uh, I look at it like, you know, you, you can make the most out of 14 hours a day. You know, you can wake mm -hmm. up early in the morning, go to the gym, focus on yourself, you know, have a nice nutritionist breakfast, nutritional, I can't even talk, nutritionist. <laughs> I made up a new word. Um, but, and then you go to work and you work your regular job and you get off at five or six. And then rather than going home, you know, after you're cooking dinner and sitting in front of a TV for hours on end, it's like, why not use that time? to start working on your passions. Maybe you want to learn a guitar. Maybe you mm -hmm. want to like focus on, I want to create a business consultant agency or business. So I'm yes. going to figure out what I need to start and spend two hours a night, every night, you know, five days a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think there's that balance. You have a lot more time in the day. You know, it's good to take a day or two off each week and reset and, and not spread yourself thin. But I just think that there's a lot of excuses out there with people a that don't want to work hard. And people don't want to sacrifice. No, there's they a want, lot of you know, sacrifice. The instant, so quickly, and that kind of thing. You know, like my youngest son, um, he's getting ready to. He plays professional basketball overseas. Oh wow! So he's been, uh -huh. Yeah, he's been to Italy. He's been to Spain. He's been to Indonesia. He's been to Vietnam. He's been to Australia. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And when the pandemic hit, you know, I was like, hey, everybody come home. Let's, you know, so we're all safe in this. So he was supposed to go back to Vietnam, but now still with the pandemic. So he's got a job, um, a basketball. They called him down to come and play in Tampa. So the same thing. I was like, listen, he was like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to go get a Dodge Charger. And I was like, what? Yeah. Now, you're grown. You can do, go do what you want to do. But, you know, he, he got some dollars in the bank because he was working, you know, here while he was at home. And, yeah, I got some money saved up. Go get a little car, man. You're going mm-hmm. from, you got your apartment. You're going from, and you got a roommate. So that was smart, right? Going yep. down to Tampa. Just get a beater, right? Yeah. <laughs> just kind of keep the oil and shit changed every three to four months. And you're just going from your apartment to the gym, apartment to the gym. Because y'all going to be working and, you know, practicing and playing games. What are you talking about? A fucking Dodge Charger for who? For them to say you got a Dodge Charger for the ladies. I'm so proud of him. He did. Mm-hmm. He got a he cash for a little uh, 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 used um, uh, car here that he, he went and got the other day. So I was proud of him for doing that. Nah. And it's just sometimes we don't want to do the same. We don't want to put in the time and effort, and we don't want to execute, and we don't want to sacrifice. That, that's uh, you know, I think what it is is most of the materialistic things like that it's for everybody else but ourselves it's we want to be seen in a certain light you know it's kind of like the the current generation of like the the fake kind of rich kind of like you see guys wearing like you know expensive joggers and nikes and like got the gold watch and the jewelry and a nice car and then you know what they live in an apartment and got two or three roommates and you're like why fake it like fuck i was driving a toyota matrix the car looks like a fucking (laughs) egg for like however many years with like scratch marks up and down it, no hubcaps on it, just completely ghetto. <laughs> and uh, I remember picking up girls to go on dates in that thing. And I was like, fuck, I own that thing. I was like, I didn't That's care. Not- I was like, hey, this is my car. And you know what I loved about that car is it was my ultimate test to see if a woman wanted to stick around or not. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know. You just got to own it. Yeah, I, 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 of course, I, I have to admit, I had done that in the past, you know, doing things for, because I thought what people would think of me, right? Oh, well, sh- she should have this and she should be living this way or she should be driving that. Now I don't give a crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. you know, really, I'm going to do what's best for me. Uh, you know, I've, I've done that, been there, done it before. I'm not doing that fake it till you make it shit. I'm yep. either made it or didn't make it. I'm either, I'm not, I'm because I'm living a lie. You know, and at the end of the day, I don't feel good because I'm lying to me. I don't give a damn about everybody else, but I'm lying to myself. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my youngest son for, you know, getting a roommate and, and buying the, you know, a used vehicle where he, now he don't have to worry about that. He's just got his phone bill and half the rent, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not that expensive. So you don't have to worry about all those things. But I've been there before, too. I got the Louis Vuitton purse. I got the this. I got yep. What? I can go right to TJ Maxx, get me a nice little pocketbook <laughs> for $30, $40. And I said, look, I got $30, $40 in the Louis Vuitton and $30, $40 in the $30 purse. Yep. I mean, really. I mean, it, again, I'm not bashing anybody that doesn't have nice things. because I, I like nice things probably just like the next one. Yeah, we all do. It's a difference between can you afford it versus you just want to buy it. Yeah. And then, you know, what's your, what's your passion? What are you going to sacrifice to get to a point or a place in your life where you want to be. Now, if you want to live like that, hey, by all means do. Listen, guys, I'm single. I don't want a man that's going to be doing all that crazy shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Come on, come correct now. Oh, yeah. Hey, you got five bedrooms. You should start uh, moving some of these men into each of those rooms. <laughs> you can have rotating dates every night. That's right. That's right. What is that? Uh, 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 not bed and breakfast, but... Um, 
what is that shit called? When you Airbnb. Airbnb. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Move one in, move one in. The other one goes out and then just have a cycle. <laughs> well, Tanya, I appreciate, I know Dan, I just hearing more of your story, having you be a part of this book. I don't want to take up much more of your night, but it's been great to kind of hear more in depth. Um, that's the whole purpose of obviously not just having the men and women represented in this book, but you know, the short story that we can barely fit on one page. It's better to have this full episode where we can kind of dive deep into your career and and where you're at now. And I appreciate you coming on board and, and helping us out with everything. Yeah. Hell yeah. You know, again, I, hell, I appreciate y'all for, you know, asking me to be a part of a part of this. And, and especially, you know, this project that you guys uh, are creating for the veteran community and to, to share our stories with, with the world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, just freaking amazing. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep pushing, keep sacrificing, keep doing that passion, you know, just being out there and just, you know, uh, spreading the word and sharing our stories. And I'm sure, you know, this book is going to be fucking amazing and yeah. hope it wins some awards and prizes <laughs> and, and all that stuff. And, and, you know, bestseller, because I, I just know it's going to be truly, truly amazing. I know you guys probably already got something in mind for your next book, right? We do. We, <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we, we're we always kind of thinking ahead. And, and that's the hard part is obviously working on this thing. You know, we're already thinking on the next one. But yeah. really, really, you know, being fair to this one and putting all of our time and attention and, and being very picky, not just slapping it together, you know, last minute, but making each design and each page unique to every veteran. And, um, you know, it, it's just great to have you know, people like yourself that want to help contribute to that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think your story is incredibly powerful. You've had every single hurdle wall, whatever it was in your way mm-hmm. and you leap bounded, blew through them, you know, whatever you had to do to get through them. And I hope, you know, people listen to this, um, podcast also open the book, see your story and see you and understand how successful a woman and especially a woman of color can be. Yep. And it becomes, you know, you're, you're blazing trails without even, you know, realizing how many trails you're creating to, <laughs> to make more and more, uh, women successful. And it, it's just incredible and powerful. And, and I can't thank you enough for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Again, you know, we got to have a seat at the table. We have to be present yep. and we have to you know use our voice. So you guys have been freaking amazing. Um, this was easy. It was fun. You know, mm-hmm. we got to laugh. <laughs> and then, you know, I got to be, you know, open and free. I, I've done some before. And it's like, you know, don't do this and don't be like, okay. But I just had a ball, you know, talking to both uh, you guys here and just yeah. making me feel at home and making this a very comfortable uh, podcast to do. Of course. Anytime. Absolutely. All right, Tonya, we'll be in touch. And thanks again. All right. Thank you, guys.